road south across the Arkansas River was straight and only took seconds for the eye to travel its length across the prairie. There really was no cover, just rolling hills and nothing to block the view. On the plains, there were times in which Old Man Winter refused to give up without a fight. Spring would ride in on a gentle breeze, unhindered by any hill. All that punctuated our travel into the frontier was long strands of clouds being dragged across the sky by the wind. There was never a more favorable measure of men in the world. Each man was Simon, pure and happier than a lark to venture out into the Texas Panhandle. All were in rugged health, none in need, most habituated to the hardships of life in the wilderness. Each poised that he could take care of himself, sure of the help of his comrades in an emergency, and everybody was cheerful and proud as could be. Each man could stand the gaff and found someone they could ride the river with. If there was care of any kind, it was too light to be felt. Each man had provided himself with a saddled horse. I was never without one, the best that money could buy in that country. All the wagons were heavily loaded, which compelled us to drive at easy stages. Two men whom I had known for some time by the name of Ed Jones and Joe Plummer drove the freighters directly behind us. A.C. Myers hired them both to pull his freight for him. Both men were buffalo hunters turned merchants. They were noted for their comings and goings between Dodge City and the Texas Panhandle country. Jones and Plummer had traveled the route so many times hauling products to Dodge City that they created a rut trail. Soon, many of the buffalo hunters followed this trail down to the Canadian River and on to Fort Elliott. The trail became so popular that many of us who made the trip regularly named it the Jones and Plummer Trail. I did not know much about Joe Plummer, but Edward Jones and I kept good company over the years out on the plains. Edward Jones first entered the territory by being hired out to a Wisconsin firm to hunt and ship buffalo hides to the leather making factories. With his contract in hand, he came to Kansas in 1872. Jones, of English descent, turned out to be a hard customer. I guess mostly because he became known by many of us as Dirty Face Ed. I'm thinking he did not care much for his moniker. It did not take Jones long to acquire his moniker, as he got into a ruckus with an Indian two months after his arrival in Dodge City. During the ruckus, that Indian fired a gun so close to his face that his appearance became permanently marked by powder burns. After that day and ever since, he became known as Dirty Face Ed. His reputation and image followed him as being fearless and one of the most self-reliant hunters on the plains. If Dirty Face Ed had ever known failure in his life, it didn't show. Everything from the way he held himself to the way he spoke made him well known as a confident man among the buffalo hunters. My thoughts began to wonder about this fellow, Dirty Face Ed, when Masterson rounded the wagon and pulled up next to me. Hey, Billy Dixon, shouted Masterson. I looked over at Masterson. Below the brim of his hat, I could see his unmoving eyes. He held a big grin in place that showed almost every tooth. Neither moved, not the eyeballs, not the stretched thin lips. With a wide grin spread over Masterson's face, it meant something very bad was about to happen, or something impractical. I knew Masterson and his thinking. Most of the time, he was thinking about the kind of hoax he was going to pull on a man. Masterson was a prankster. He held no bones about the idea of honey-fuggling a man's personality into a hog-killing of a time. 
What's on your mind, Masterson? I asked. Well, Dixon, you know those two fellers behind us? Asked Masterson. Yep, I replied. If you're thinking about pulling a joke on Plummer and Jones, I wouldn't advise it. That Jones feller has no liking to playfulness. I was once told that Jones was driving a 12-mule team down to Palo Duro on a dark night when someone yelled, You halt! Old Jones said, You go to hell, you son of a bitch, and kept going. That feller never said another word. No, I wasn't thinking about a joke, replied Masterson. Although I have plenty of them to foster out here just to break the boredom. Masterson paused and smiled. I was thinking more about our nightly entertainment. Both of those boys play a grand fiddle. Maybe we can convince them to strike up a tune for us this evening. Even though Plummer and Jones are both fiddlers of a sort and exchanged instruments on occasion, I replied, I just wouldn't fiddle with them anyway. I haven't known you to be much of a dancer. Well, you're right about that, Billy. I'm not much of a dancer, unless I have a pretty girl next to me. Then I can really wing up a fandango, said Masterson. But Mike McCabe likes to play to the gallery and beat the Dutch with his dancing. McCabe is worth a whole night of entertainment once he gets going on that scamper juice. Now what about old Dirty Face Ed? Masterson asked. I know he's good at dealing with horse thieves, I replied. It's his custom on the trail to turn his mules loose at night by first making certain his saddle horse is secured to a wagon wheel. Watch what he does tonight at our first camp. He knows those mule of his won't stray far from camp. What does that have to do with dealing with a horse thief? asked Masterson. You remember last night, right before we pulled out of Dodge, how Dirty Face Ed announced that he would do if he ever lost a mule? I said. Yeah, replied Masterson. Dirty Face said in a voice that all could hear that he wouldn't hunt his mules if they were stolen. Instead, he'd hunt down the men who stole them. Dirty Face Ed made that announcement before, I said. In fact, he makes that announcement every time he leaves a place. Now why would he say that, or do that, asked Masterson, unless it must have worked out for him one time. Well, it did, I replied. On one of the early trips south from Dodge, his mules were stolen. He was so upset about the thievery that he returned to Dodge on the next day. When Ed arrived, he went directly to Hanrahan's. Well, go on, said Masterson, who rode next to me. I could tell Masterson was interested in my story by the intense look on his face. He shifted his weight to the inside of his saddle and dug his heel into the horse. Masterson's horse picked up pace next to mine in perfect rhythm, ducking his head in and bouncing toward the inside of the wagon. While Dirty Face Ed was in Hanrahan's saloon, he purchased a bottle of whiskey and announced that a gang of thieves had taken his mules, I said. Dirty Face told everyone in the saloon that he was not going to hunt down the mules. Instead, he'd take his buffalo gun and hunt down four thieving men. He called out each man by their first and last names. How did Dirty Face Ed know who took the mules? asked Masterson. I'm not sure, I replied. Dirty Face apparently made believers of the horse thieves. The next night, the leader of the gang sent one of the men back, not only with the mules, but with an apology a buckskin, and a money bag as well. The man who brought the mules back said, I brought you a hundred dollars. The boys gave it to me to pay the damages.
got to Crooked Creek the first day out of Dodge. We ate like wolves and could have digested a dry buffalo hide with a hair on it. Spring was on the way, and the air was light and buoyant, making the days and nights an endless delight. No more of the bare sticks that told of winter's magic came the green flags, the parade of spring in bright bloom. The chorus of the skies called forth the promise of the earth and sunshine combined. Best of all was when we camped at night, music and the telling of tales. In the party were many veterans of the Civil War with endless stories of desperate battles that were much to our liking. Drinking in the pure, fresh air of the plains, we rolled from our blankets every morning, clear-headed and ready for any enterprise. Just to feel oneself living in that country was a joy. We heard nothing and cared nothing about politics. It made little difference to us who was President of the United States. We worked hard, had enough money for our everyday needs, and we were happy. Happier, perhaps, than we ever were in later years. Youth probably had much to do with our contentment. The second day's travel brought us to the Cimarron River, and here we stopped at one of my old campgrounds. The Cimarron River is a sleeping rattler. It lies across the land in smooth, seductive curves, beautiful in the morning light, cold and innocuous. Yet it hides a myriad of dangers, its swift undertow being the least of our concerns. Masterson and I sat on our horses looking out over the Cimarron River. It looks as if we've reached the deadline, I said. Beyond the banks of this river is hostile Indian country. Masterson pulled back his shoulders, took a saddle stretch, and leaned forward. I've heard of this place, replied Masterson. The Cimarron is a Spanish word, meaning outcast, outlaw, or wanderer. It's a name sometimes applied in Spanish-speaking countries to a steer that wanders away from the herd and ranges alone, wild and intractable. The Cimarron is true to his name, then, I replied. I can only say the Cimarron is commonly regarded as one of the most dangerous streams in the Southwest. Its width often is three or four hundred yards. The current deceptively swift, strong, deep, and murky. It's filled to the brim with sand and through the sand is an underflow. From the bank of the river where Masterson and I sat, he and I both wondered about the best point of crossing. The quicksand of the Cimarron is notorious, I said. No crossing is ever permanently safe. The sand grips like a vice and the river sucks down and buries all that it touches. Trees, wagons, horses, cattle, and men alike. If the latter should be too weak to extricate themselves. Masterson leaned out over the top of his horse and looked puzzled. He then pointed in the direction of a bend in the river. What's that white substance peering out from underneath the current, he asked. Those are the remains of buffalo, I replied. In the old days, I continued, countless buffaloes bogged down and disappeared beneath the sands of this here river. The swift current, especially in the spring months, frequently uncovers the dismembered skeletons of the buffalo. This is when the river is in flood. After a rise, the Cimarron is particularly dangerous. As it boils and rolls along, the river loosens and hurls forward. I'm astonished by the power of this river, exclaimed Masterson. A man could quickly find himself pulled down by the current. Not only can the current be troublesome, but the increasing weight of sand that lodges in a man's clothes may cause swimming to become difficult and finally impossible. 
Many a wagon, mule, and sometimes a man has suffered with tremendous exertion while crossing this here river, I replied. In the breaks of the Cimarron, we had the hardest kind of pulling, as there was lots of sand and the country rough. The fourth day brought us to the beaver, the central prong of the North Canadian, its other branch being Wolf Creek. Both the beaver and Wolf Creek unite to Camp Supply, the point to which I had helped haul supplies for the Custer expedition, with the outfit of mules that stampeded in harness as we were returning to Fort Hayes. This time we struck the Palo Duro at its mouth, where there was plenty of water. Here we camped, and then moved into the panhandle of Texas. 